Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for uh, being here today, for taking the time. Um, my name is Monica Hernandez, and then we are with Material Business in this bi-weekly edition uh, with very interesting interviews uh, with people like Carlos that had accepted to come and share knowledge with this beautiful community. So thank you so much for being here. A couple of little uh, housekeeping rules. We will have questions uh, through the Q&A only. So if you have questions throughout, send them in through the Q&A, and then we have a moderator that will ask the questions towards the end of the presentation. And uh, this, uh, this uh, interview will be also available for later uh, watch, uh, or if you guys want to listen in a podcast, those channels will be available after the interview. So without further delay, Carlos Melo, thank you so much for accepting being here with us today. I'm going to just do a, a little introduction of Carlos. We're going to talk about integrity assessment of unpickable pipelines. What do you do when you cannot pick those pipelines? So Carlos, uh, in December 2020, he got his PhD in mechanical engineering with a specialty in pipeline engineering at the Pipeline Engineering Center from the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. His research focused on risk-based inspection and maintenance planning for unpickable pipelines subject to internal corrosion. In November, in November 2015, Carlos got his MSc in Corrosion Control Engineering from the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. His research concentrated on the implementation of a risk-based inspection plan for an oil processing facility. In November 20, uh, 2002, Carlos got his bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the Escuela Politécnica Nacional in Quito, Ecuador. From 2002 to 16, Carlos worked in Ecuador as a cathodic protection engineer, corrosion technician, and mechanical integrity engineer. Since 2020, Carlos has been working in the USA as senior pipeline integrity consultant for VECOR Pipeline Integrity. Carlos is certified by the Association of Materials Protection and Performance, AMPP, or former NACE, in cathodic protection CP3, Coding Inspection CIP2, Internal Corrosion Technologist, and Instruction for Catholic Protection CP1 and 2. Pipeline Integrity as Direct Assessment in Pipeline Corrosion Integrity Management. He has taught numerous classes in North America, South America, and Asia. Carlos also collaborated as an instructor for the online corrosion control in the oil and gas industry as an instructor for the maintenance management certification from the San Francisco University in Quito, Ecuador. Carlos, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? Thank you very much, Monica. That's a wonderful opportunity to be here. Thanks for having me and thanks to all the participants to this session where we can share our experience and, and learn from what we have done in the industry. Super, thank you. 
So we'll do a little bit of questions and then I'll, I'll open the floor for you for your presentation. So we have through that beautiful uh, speech on your bio, you are super an expert in corrosion in pipelines. You have done a lot of those things. Um, tell me a little bit about your experience in pipelines and how that caught your attention to work in pipelines per se. My first experience with pipelines was 20 years ago. When I just graduated from the university, I got my first position as a welding inspector for the construction of the biggest oil pipeline in Ecuador. And after that project, I realized that I needed to learn a lot if I wanted to succeed in my career. And for six years, I was working in two different uh, contractors in Ecuador, and these contractors were responsible of designing and installing cathodic protection systems for pipeline operators in Ecuador. In 2005, I got the first opportunity to attend to a training at the headquarters of the Association of Materials Protection and Performance, and former known as NACE, this training was to become a cathodic protection te technician or CP1. And after that training, I realized that it was a world of opportunities if you really engage in these uh, trainings and learn more about corrosion control and pipelines. During this time, I also got an opportunity to, to learn different techniques to inspect pipelines from above ground without getting in contact with the pipeline. And this knowledge that I learned get me into a new position in a pipeline operator as a corrosion technician. And that was what I was doing all the time. For a year, I was just doing the inspection of the cathodic protection systems and coatings for this operator. And this then gave me a new opportunity, which was the, to work as a mechanical integrity engineer for the oil and gas company of Ecuador. In this position, I realized that it's not just only about corrosion, there are other threats uh, to the integrity of a pipeline. And I attended to another training uh, for AM. The name of this training was Pipeline Corrosion Integrity Management. And what I learned in this training, as soon as I returned to my job, I tried to apply everything that I learned. And I was just amazed of how you can transform your experience in your work when you use the knowledge from a training in your real job. Because of that uh, desire to learn, in 2020, I started that PhD program at the University of Calgary. And during this uh, program, what I developed is a new ways uh, to assess the integrity of what we know as unpickable pipelines. And I will share later more details about this uh, research. Before my graduation uh, from the University of Calgary, a contractor from the US, uh, Becker Pipeline Integrity, hired me as a senior pipeline integrity consultant. And since uh, that time, I have been supporting now the oil and gas operators in the US in helping them to assess the integrity of their pipelines and also to improve the mitigation 
plans that they have implemented to control corrosion. Wow, that sounds amazing. Thank you so much. So it seems like you have a lot of experiences, not only in the field and with the companies, but also in academia and as nation structure. And um, um, like which ones of those you prefer the most? Because you have been in a wide variety that not a lot of people have the privilege to be uh, in so many different areas. So which ones are the ones that you prefer the most? As you said, uh, Monica, I have had the opportunity to work as a pipeline integrity engineer and also as a pipeline integrity researcher. And I consider that both of them are equally important. First of all, we need engineers because they need to have practical experience and they will be responsible at the end on implementing the pipeline integrity programs that make our pipeline safe. And as I said, these people which, is, which are working in the industry, they need to have a way of learning because they don't know everything just from the industry. And that's where we have the support from organizations such as AMP. They have the programs that can help the professionals to implement these techniques in a better way. And as I, I mentioned in my previous uh, response, I did that. I went to training and then I used that knowledge from the training and it made my job even better. Now we have the academia, the researchers. What they are doing is they are finding new ways to assess the integrity of pipelines. And now we have a lot of information and that's why we need more research because we need to be able to use that information to be able to develop new ways to transform this in better decisions to make our pipeline safer. Wow, that sounds amazing. It is it is a whole cooperation. Like we have to be more holistic and then engage at every single part. And that is that is also my, my experience. So thank you so much. I just want to uh, for the the people that just joined. If you have questions throughout the presentation, just put it in the Q&A and then we will ask those questions at the end. So I also wanted to remind you that we started publishing uh, one of Carlos' papers that specifically talks about this topic uh, last week in our newsletter. And we'll continue with the second part of that paper um, in the next in the next editions of the uh, newsletter. So if you haven't subscribed, um, it's the time to do. Now, Carlos, I'll let you uh, get the floor and then perhaps you can talk about what can we do with those unpickable little pieces of pipe that we can't uh, pick. Okay, can you confirm that you are able to see my presentation, please, uh, Monica? I, sorry, I can. Can you put it okay. in presentation mode, Bear? Ah, okay, sorry, I was sharing the wrong screen. Let me use the other one. Okay, here you go. Perfect, awesome. Okay, so let me just give you a quick overview on what we can do with the 
integrity of how we assess the integrity of configurable pipelines. But this is a quick outline of what we will cover during this uh, presentation. We will see how we perform these techniques uh, based on the industry standards. And what I did in my research at the University of Calgary, showing other options that we have to assess the integrity. And I will share with you what were the, the main contributions of this research to the academia of the scientific contributions and also some contributions for the industry. And as Monica mentioned, we will have time for questions and answers. So why we need to do all of this is because pipelines fail. Even though we have very good construction codes, they continue to fail. And there are different causes for these failures. In this uh, diagram here, I have the information from the ESMEB318S, which is the standard in the US for the integrity of gas transmission lines. And they identified 22 causes for pipeline failures, and they divided this in three groups, time-dependent, stable, and time-independent. In this presentation, I will focus on the time-dependent uh, threats, specifically on internal corrosion. But depending on where you are located in the world, there are some threats that have a higher influence on your systems. In this graph, we have the statistics uh, from the Pipeline and Hazards uh, Material Safety Administration, which is responsible for the safety of pipelines in the US. And according to this uh, statistic information, corrosion is responsible of 20% of failures in the US of hazardous liquids pipelines. If we use the information from the Alberta Energy Regulator, this number will go up to 50%. So as I said, depending on where you are, corrosion will be a bigger threat to your systems. I have included now in these slides a few pictures of other failures that were caused in pipelines operated in Ecuador. Here we have an example of an outside force failure. This is an operator error. You can see all this oil is not due to corrosion, it's just because of an error or an operator that was doing a maintenance of a device that was used for a pipeline. Here is external damage, so somebody intentionally damaged the pipeline to make it fail. That's another threat. We have external corrosion. Here we have a picture of a pipeline that failed in a very short period of time because of external corrosion. Here we have the stress corrosion cracking, which in Canada in the 1990s was responsible of almost 20% of the pipeline failures. And finally, we have here uh, pictures from internal corrosion, which, as I said, in Canada, Alberta, is almost 50% of the failures in the US is up to 20% of the failures. Okay, so we have failures, but we need to do something to prevent the failures. And that's what we know as pipeline integrity. But where do we start? As we saw on the previous slides, 
the first thing that we need to know is what are my threats? We saw that there are up to 22 threats and we need to focus in the main threat, which in this case is internal corrosion. So this is part of the identification of the risk. Because we are trying to implement this integrity program alongside a pipe uh, risk management program. Once we know what's the threat, then we need to know what's the risk of this threat to my system. And how we calculate the risk, we need to know what's the likelihood of my pipeline failing, which is the probability, and what's the consequence of my pipeline failing, which is the consequence. And then we can assess the risk. So once you know the risk, then you can compare with your criteria. Is my risk acceptable? Yes or no. If it is not, then we have to implement control strategies. And we will go back to this later in this uh, presentation. As part of this risk <clears throat> assessment for pipelines, there are three methodologies that have been accepted to do that. The first one is the pressure test. For this one, your pipeline is out of service during the test and it is full of water. And you will only know that your pipeline is safe at that specific time of the test. But your pipeline can fail on the next day, but the pressure test will not give you any detailed information. The next option is inland inspection, which is a very detailed inspection technique. This uses a tool that travels on the inside of the pipeline, such as the one that you can see here in the picture. And is collecting information on the location, the size, and the type of anomalies that are a threat for your pipeline. The issue with this tool is that according to data around the world, almost 50% of the pipelines cannot be inspected with this tool, which means they are unpickable. And why is that? Because they operate at temperatures that are higher and the range safe for this tool, or they have valves that they do not allow the pass of these tools. And there are many reasons that can make a pipeline unpickable. And the third option is direct assessment. In this, in this uh, methodology, what we do is we use the information from the pipeline to select locations to inspect the pipeline. And based on the information of these locations, we assess the integrity of the entire pipeline. I was talking about these three methods and in 2002 in the US, our research was completed to estimate what's the cost to inspect all the pipelines that we have in the country with these different tools. And as you can see, of these three methods, the most economic option is direct assessment. And why is that? Because when you want to apply this methodology, you don't need to do any modifications to the pipeline, which is the case when we are talking about inland inspection. Now, as you have seen, these pipelines can fail. And we need to assess their integrity. But 
inline inspection is not always the best option. Here, we have a picture of a pipeline that is pickable, but to send the inspection tool, you need to use a helicopter to the pick launcher, and then you need a helicopter to remove the tool or transport the tool from the pick receiver to the location where you will analyze the data, which make it very expensive. So this pipeline can also be considered as unpickable because it's expensive to do the assessment. And in that case, we have direct assessment, but based on what we have now, we are only considering the corrosion, but not the risk. So we need to include the risk to assess these pipelines and have better options to inspect it, but not just considering the corrosion part. Let's talk now about how we implement direct assessment based on the existing standards that we have from AMP, which is which was known before as NACE. So NACE developed the specific methodologies for the three time-dependent trends, external corrosion, internal corrosion, and stress corrosion cracking. And all of them have these four steps. The first step is collecting information about the system. We need to know what's the size of the pipeline, the length of the pipeline, and very specific information for each one of these three threads. Once you complete the pre-assessment, you go to the next step, which is an indirect examination. So for external, you will go some inspections from the right of way, for internal, you will do some simulations. And based on the information from the first step and the second step, you select sites for the verification. And based on the information of these sites, which is normally done using non-destructive inspection tools, you assess the integrity of the pipeline and you calculate the remaining life and the reassessment intervals, which is part of the four steps. So all of them follow this four-step process. This is a graphical uh, representation of where we can, or what are the different corrosion threats that we can address using direct assessment. We have external corrosion, we have stress corrosion cracking, we have wet gas, ICDA, we have liquid petroleum ICDA, dry gas ICDA, and multi-phase ICDA. So these standards, as you can see in this table, were developed between 2006 and 2016. And the difference between them is that the first one, the dry gas, is just looking for locations where the water can accumulate, but it's not predicting any corrosion rates or expected damage on this location. It's just trying to locate sites where water can accumulate. The next standard that was published in 2008, the first uh, version, in addition to locating the water, is also locate, locating where solids can accumulate. But again, it's not calculating or estimating the 
corrosion damage. When we go to the next one, wet gas and the next one, multi-phase, then in addition to calculating or locating these sites where water can accumulate, we also need to estimate what's the rate of that corrosion in these sites. And I will give you a case study using this methodology, the multi-phase flow ICDA. As I said, we are looking for sites where water or solids can accumulate. And why corrosion is happening when the water and solids accumulate is because when you have water, you have an electrolyte. If the pipeline is not protected, most of these pipelines are not internally coded, then corrosion will continue until you have a failure. If you have solids, again, this is a perfect environment for corrosion to accelerate until you have a failure. So what we can do is we can use the multi-phase ICDA. In this case study, we have four gathering pipelines that are located in Ecuador. In one of them, the operator already have failures due to internal corrosion. And these pipelines are internally coded, which is one of the issues when we were trying to implement internal corrosion direct assessment on these pipelines. So we completed the pre-assessment and then we went into the simulation. But for that simulation, as I said before, we need to know what's the size, what's the shape, and the distribution of the differences of particles in these solids. Why is that? Because you need to predict where these small particles of solids will drop down and accumulate at the bottom of the pipe. That's why we need to know the specific size, shape, and distribution of these particles. And we put that information into a model that will predict what's going to be the corrosion rate. So this red line represents the corrosion rate at the smaller sections of the pipeline. And this blue line is the elevation profile. So according to this, the pipeline has failed. But because this pipeline has a internal coding, it didn't fail. So which means that the decision of the engineers that were designing this pipeline to have an internal coding was the best decision because without a coding this pipeline will have would have failed. The other section, as I said, it already failed before the DA and the model was predicting the locations where we have the failures. And other locations that were already very close to failure, but Remember that in this case, because of the coding, we need to have both conditions for the failure. We need to have a failure in the coding, and then we have the accelerated corrosion process because of the fluids that were being transported in this pipeline. So once we completed the model, we selected sites on one of the pipelines, the one that didn't fail and the internal coding was still in good shape. We didn't fight any internal corrosion. But on the other pipeline, <clears throat> the one that has previous failures, five previous failures, 
we found two sites with internal corrosion. And in addition to internal corrosion, in two of them, we also found external corrosion. But this was not intentional. It was a, a coincidence that during the excavation, we found external. So these models are very precise. So we have seen what the industry is doing now to predict internal corrosion and locate these sites. But now, when I was at the University of Calgary, my focus was what we can do to make this decision, not just based on corrosion, but based on the risk. Because as we saw before, there is a risk for each one of these failures. And the first sort of objective was to develop a framework to implement this um, methodology. The second one, because most of these failures are due to localized corrosion, was to develop a model that can include this localized corrosion factor into the predictions and also microbiologically influenced corrosion. And the third sort of objective was to make these decisions based on risk. Was the optimal location for these verification sites and number. So that was the goal when I started my research. And what I did first was to develop this framework. And in this slide, you will see the framework alongside the risk management protocol from the Canadian Standard Association SEP662 standard, which is the reference in Canada for the integrity of oil and gas pipelines. So first, we need to establish what's the risk that I will tolerate, what's my acceptance criteria. Then we need to define my system. For my research, this system was unpickable pipelines. Then we go to the identification of the hazard. We already discussed that for this case was internal corrosion. And then we go to the very detailed part of the analysis, which is the risk assessment. So we need to calculate what's the probability of a failure and the consequence of a failure. So for my research, I use what was already there because the industry was already using this flow analysis and corrosion analysis. And this was the input for a probabilistic analysis. And then I also use this flow analysis to calculate the consequence of these failures. The product of these two was the risk. Then based on my acceptance criteria, I can select locations which are above my risk. So if they are above my risk, then I need to do something, which is for the case of my research, inspection and maintenance. And you have a, the full view of the risk management protocol and the proposed framework. Let's get into the details of some of these areas. So as I said before, pipelines are going to fail, but not because of general corrosion. It's very rare that you hear from a pipeline failing from general corrosion. According to data again from FIMSA, the Pipeline Hazardous Material and Safety Administration in the US, 
70% of the failures due to internal corrosion are related with localized corrosion and microbiologically influenced corrosion. Therefore, we need to have a capacity of including these effects when we are estimating the risk of these pipelines. How did we did that? Is we started with the models that are used for direct assessment. And from these models, we obtain the expected size of a, of a general corrosion feature. Then, using a probabilistic analysis, we transform this expected value, which is just a single number, into a probability distribution. And in this graph, we have on the x-axis the depth of the corrosion feature, and on the y-axis the probability density function. So once we have this for general corrosion, we need to go to localized corrosion. And for that part, I use, again, information from existing industry models to obtain what's the relationship between localized corrosion and general corrosion, including also the effects of microbiologically influenced corrosion. And with that, two factors, I obtain the expected value of the size of localized corrosion features, considering also MIC. And with an extreme value analysis, I was able now to obtain the distribution of the size of localized corrosion features. How we apply this in practice? Let's see a case, a case study that was used to implement or to demonstrate this model. So in this case, we have a short pipeline, which is 0.43 meters in diameter and 348 meters in length. And to be able to complete this analysis, we discretize uh, these pipelines in 58 sections of six meters each. And this pipeline was operating for six years before the analysis. What we did is uh, using that information from the life of this pipeline, an existing model, I obtained the expected value of the size of general corrosion features for each one of these 58 sections. So this is what you see in this graph. On the y-axis is the expected value of the size of general corrosion features on the y-axis, and on the x-axis is each one of these 58 sections. And from the 58 sections, I select six of them, and I classify them in three different um, categories according to the NACE standard 0775. And we have two severe, 11 and 33, two high corrosion sections, two and 58, and then two moderate corrosion sections, five and 15 and 19. And I use these six sections to apply the model that we saw on the previous slide. And this is what I get from section 58. So in this graph, the y-axis is the 
cumulative distribution function and the x-axis is the depth of the corrosion feature. The black continuous line is the distribution for localized corrosion features and the red dotted line is the distribution for general corrosion features. So you see that there is a difference between these two. But then you need to apply this to estimate the risk or the probability of failure of each one of these sections. And this is what I have here in this slide. So for each one of these six sections, I'm showing you the, the probability of failure for localized corrosion features and the probability of failure for general uh, corrosion features. And here is the ratio. And as you can see, it varies between two and three, which means that when you are assessing the risk of failure due to internal corrosion, it is non-conservative to use general corrosion. We need to use localized corrosion. Now, let's go into the last part of the research. We were talking about decisions, and we can represent a decision in a decision tree, which is what we have here now on the screen. The first decision is where to inspect. So you can inspect any of the sections of your pipeline. As we talk in the case study, you can inspect section one, two, three, up to 58, or you can say, I don't want to inspect any of the sections. This is your first decision. Once you do your inspection, you will get a result. So you go with your UT tool and you measure the wall thickness of your pipeline. And this result can be, my pipeline is 10%, 20, all the way to 100%. These are the expected results from your inspection. And based on that, then you need to decide, okay, based on what I get from my inspection, I am going to repair my pipeline, yes or no. In the industry, we have standard that says if the pipeline is more than 80% wall loss, we need to repair. In Canada, it says more than 50%, you need to repair. But you have to use each one of these options for your analysis. And based on that, then you need to calculate what's my probability of failure. And for that, you need to know, okay, my corrosion feature is this size now, what will be the size one year from now, two years from now, 10 years from now? That's where we need to start using these corrosion growth models because a pipeline has a life and we need to be able to predict what's the cause for the life of the pipeline to operate this pipeline for each one of these decisions. And this is or consequence or, or cost. You can see that if you don't expect your pipeline to not repair and your pipeline is not failing, you have no cost. Of course, the highest of these three costs is the cost of a failure. Uh, many of you will know that. But now we need to decide what's the best option for the inspection. And how we can do that is using another another value which is known as the value of the information, which means I am going to pay to make an inspection because for making an inspection, 
I need to do an excavation, I need to use a technician to do the inspection, it's going to cost me. But then I need to calculate with the information that I get from that inspection, how my decisions are better, how money can, what is the amount of money that I will save with the information that I am obtaining from this inspection. And this is the value of the information. And the idea is that the decision the inspection decision that give you the highest value of the information, that's the optimal decision. And we compare that with the scenario where you are not inspecting your pipeline, because that's the scenario that is your baseline. Okay, we talk about these corrosion growth models, but for these corrosion growth models, we can use different assumptions. We can say, okay, if I inspect this section one, then the information from this inspection will not give me any information about the rest of the pipeline. Or I can say, okay, when I inspect this section one, I can use another, what we call a hyperparameter to transfer that knowledge to the rest of the section, which means with one inspection, the entire information from the pipeline is updated. And in this part of the research, what I did is compare using different corrosion growth models, how my decisions change. And in this graph, we have here on the y-axis, the value of the information. And on the x-axis, uh, we have the sections of the pipeline. This dash dotted red line is the value of the information for each one of these sections using the exchangeable corrosion growth model and the continuous black line is using the independent corrosion growth model. And as I said before, the section that gives you the highest value of the information, that's the optimal. And as you can see, using different assumptions for your corrosion growth model is going to change your optimal decision. And that was demonstrated using this case study. But as I said, the main goal was the develop something that can make what we have now, the 60 degrees assessment, even better. For this specific pipeline that we were talking about 58 sections in length, according to the existing practices uh, from AMP, we need to inspect three sections. And that's what I will obtain by inspecting these three sections. That's my return of the investment. If I inspect section 11, 33, and one, just using my corrosion model. But now if I use the risk-based inspection method, as you can see, I will be selecting different sections. Instead of 11, I will select 47 for the first inspection. Instead of 33, I will select 19 for the second inspection, and instead of one, I will select 29 for the tier location. And the standard says that I need to do four inspections, the standard from AMP. But according to this model that I developed, the optimal number is three. And why is that? Because you can see the value of the information is growing from one inspection to two, from two inspection to three, and then from three, it goes down to four. 
which means that I got the best return from the investment when I just did three inspection, which is an optimization of the existing process. Instead of doing three, instead of doing four, I just need three to get the optimal return of the investment. So in summary, as you can see, the main, the main contribution or the scientific was to make this connection between corrosion modeling and probabilistic corrosion growth modeling and risk decision making. As you see also, I was able to develop this connection between general and localized corrosion to use this as part of my decisions. And of course, with this optimal inspection decisions, um, <clears throat> we are improving the existing methodologies that we have now. For the industry, <clears throat> with this method, we will be able to make this pipeline safer because we are making better decisions. Most of the operators have limited resources and that's why they need this way of decision-making to use the resources as optimal as possible. And finally, we can justify with these results that we need to include this into the decision-making when we have these standards that all the industry is using. So the industry needs to get into the next level and not just consider corrosion and get into risk for their decisions. So these are some of the papers uh, that were published as part of the research. And I believe uh, Monica has also shared one of them uh, with you. That's all that I have uh, for now, uh, Monica. Excellent, thank you so much, Carlos. Um... I well, we are opening now the floor for questions. So you guys know uh, you can hit the button, the Q and A button, and then send the questions, and then we'll have a moderator asking. I do have one question though. Like it seems like we are, and we have said that many times when we do the cost of corrosion studies, uh, like in like 2016. Now we just did one in Canada. India did one. We have a lot of tools. We have brilliant people that creates new tools, new technologies like yourself. And uh, and we have a lot of good things in, in industry. Yet there's still a lot of um, ways of going and catch up to do, I will say, in the corrosion world, uh, specifically in the pipeline too. What do you think are the those challenges and how can we make face to those challenges in a better way, Carlos. What is your opinion? You have been in, in so many areas uh, that perhaps you can share uh, that thought with me. Yeah, um, for sure, um, Monica. I, I am agree with you that we have a lot of new tools that have been developed, but my main uh, concern now is that we don't have enough uh, human resources. That's, I will say, the biggest uh, constraint that we have as an industry. And why is that? Because many of the new professionals, they are not interested in working with pipelines. There is a lot of propaganda that says pipelines are bad. They are 
destroying the environment, but we don't realize that even with newer technologies such as hydrogen, we need pipelines. That's the safer way to move the energy resources that our society needs. So that's, I will say, the main, the main trouble that we have now, be able to recruit new professionals and share that knowledge that we already have with them because they will be responsible in the future for this infrastructure and our society needs pipeline. So I will say that that's our main, our main concern now to find more professionals, new professionals that want to engage in this, in this industry. That's so great. Um, yeah, I believe so too. It is a lot of, um, we can say misconceptions and then we can say people have preconceptions made on their heads and and it's very interesting to see from uh, an overall that we really require to even the ones that are already there we need to keep operating them and maintaining them and keep them safe so we are all safe so definitely thank you so much um is there uh, are there any questions in the um, in the Q&A, Felipe? Uh, yes, they are. Uh, Luis Campo Verde has one question. Uh, myself, I have another one. So let me read first from Luis. Give me one second. <clears throat> Okay, so from Luis, how much can affect the lack of information to improve this method? Uh, that's the first question. I believe that one, two, and, um, and also like uh, an affirmation. So the first question is how much can affect the lack of information to improve this method, Carlos? Okay. <clears throat> All of these uh, methodologies, let me see if I can go to the slide where I have the diagram. They need precise information. So if we don't have this precise information, then all of them will fail. So we depend on the information to develop all these strategies. And as you, you will say that Many, many tools are like this. If you don't have good data, your predictions will be inaccurate. And that the same apply for these uh, methodologies. So here you have the pre-assessment, which is the data gathering. So if you don't have precise data, if you don't know what's the diameter of your pipeline, if you, you don't know like the pressure that your pipeline is operating, or what's the distribution of the different fluids that you have inside of your pipeline? What is the amount of water that I have? Or remember that we talk about the size of these solids, then you will start to use a lot of assumptions. And when you do a lot of assumptions, if you are not, or if you don't have enough training and experience, you will not do the best assumptions, and then you will start to have 
wrong predictions, and then the people will say, okay, this methodology does not work. Because everything is like that. If you put garbage inside of your model, you will get garbage at the end of the model. So you have to be very, very careful and not just getting the information, but you need to verify the information. Where is this data coming from? Who was responsible of collecting this data? Did they use the proper procedure to collect this data? Did they were qualified, OQ qualified? The equipment that they used was calibrated at the moment that they took the measurement. So I will say that all of them are important, but probably the first step is the most important of all because all the process depend on your quality of information of data that you collect. Thank you so much, Carlos, for the answer. I believe that the second answer is also implied in this. Um, the, the second question is, is there a minimum information required to start the met method? But I believe that is already answered in your explanation. So um, yeah. yep, go ahead. So, so just to develop a little bit more about this uh, question, for each one of these threads, there is different type of information that we have to collect. So if, if you have time, you can go to the standards and some of them will give you tables that give the specific data that you need to require before proceeding to the next step. And some of the information will, is, will be mandatory, which means if you don't have that information, you cannot apply these techniques at all. So yes, there is a specific data that we need to collect for each one of these methodologies. Thank you so much, Carlos. Uh, those two questions actually are like follow about an, inf an affirmation from Luis that is uh, because there are several pipelines with decades in operation. So the initial information probably won't be available. I believe that what should be the biggest uh, like a step to to get into those pipelines that are in uh, with decades in operation yeah that that will be very difficult to run this type of analysis if you don't have precise data because it's not just data about what's the current operation of the pipeline, what's the flow that we have now. We need to have this historically, which means from the beginning of the operation till now. If you don't have it again, you, you need to start making assumptions. And if you have a lot of experience, you can make good assumptions and based on some information, you can start saying, OK, I believe this was the type of fluids that they have at the beginning. For example, in an oil field, at the beginning, you have a lot of oil and a little bit of water, but then with time, it changes. You have a lot of water and a little bit of oil. But again, they are just assumptions, which will make your predictions not as accurate. So without data, it is challenging and in some cases impossible to use these uh, methodologies. Okay, thank you so much, Carlos. Does anybody have another question through the QA?
Perfect. Well, I think we are well on time and uh, we are. Thank you so much, Carlos, once again for have come and presented such a very interesting methodology and then those case studies definitely is easier to relate uh, when you can see something in practical rather than just kind of imagine it. Um, and and there is still challenges, but I mean with uh, things like new developments and new tools and as as we said before with applying everything that we have uh, in hand, then we hope that this industry will grow into a safer and uh, and then a better managed, if I allow myself to say it, um, way to to practice. So thank you so much. Thank you everyone that have come uh, and uh, spend this time with us. As a reminder, we'll just uh, finish publishing the paper that um, that Carlos has graciously provided and um, it, it will be passed into the next uh, newsletter issue. So if you guys want to take a read of it and uh, don't forget to subscribe. And uh, thanks again. And if you have any questions, uh, don't don't hesitate to reach out and uh, hope you guys have a beautiful evening or morning or whatever time use time you are. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye. Thank Bye. you, Carlos.